So again, this morning we continue our new series here in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 on us being the body of Christ. And as you can see in your bulletin on the back, we'll, we will just be covering verse 13 this morning because it's such an important verse. But we read verses 12 and 13 because as you can just see in how it's written, in order to understand really 13 and apply it, we do need to make sure we get what's being said there in verse 12. And so let's at first, as we begin this morning, I want to review quickly last week, for those of you who are here, or even if you weren't here, uh, verse 12 and what we saw there. And so last week, we did talk about what it really means. It means for us to be, according to the Bible, the body of Christ. Right? And to answer that, we looked here in verse 12 and we looked a couple other places in the New Testament. And in summary, we saw five things. Right? Five things that build on one another concerning what being the body of Christ actually means. And so to start this morning, I want to just briefly rehash those five things because they'll set us up for verse 13. And so quickly, five things that being the body of Christ means. Number one, to begin, Christ's body means, being Christ's body means that we are saved by Jesus and connected to Jesus in a real sense. But it doesn't mean that Christ no longer has a physical body himself. We talked about that because remember, Jesus still does and he's going to come back in that body. The number two, we built on that last week by thinking, okay then, so how can we be said to be Christ's body? Well, number two, we can say it because in a real sense, Jesus is though actually in us and with us by his spirit, which will connect to what we see this week in verse 13. Which then led, number three, last week to how we talked about that Christ isn't just with us and in us as his body, but he works through us as his body by his spirit as well meaning we're now vessels. The church is a vessel through which he works through. Which then led to number four, to how we did see that this being the body of Christ, though, is not the case with individual Christians in the Bible, but since it's the church in God's word that is said to be Christ's body, that the body of Christ is actually only when individuals gather, because that's what the word church means. And that means that no believer in themselves can be said to be the body of Christ. We're each body parts, but it's only when believers gather together that they are called Christ's body. And so that was the first four things from last week, which all culminated then, finally, and in number five, to how we saw that this all happens, right? This us being the body of Christ by the Spirit, we works in us and through us together as body parts, we saw that this all happens in the local church, in local churches. And, and as we talked about that last week, that's, that's why bringing this all together, it's why Jesus' plan and his command to his followers is the church. Because Jesus chose and intentionally used the word church to communicate that he wanted individual people who believed in him to gather in localities, as body parts together, making up local bodies, local churches. Which is why, remember, in verse 27 of this chapter here, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's about to say to them, quote, you are the body of Christ. And so that was last week. And again, I think it's helpful for us to remember all that, because that then means, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. Because that then does show us definitively from the Bible that Jesus' plan for every Christian is the local church. 
But also, as we'll keep talking about in our series, it's helpful for us to remember, because that does mean, brothers and sisters, that us here, being a local body of Jesus is a big deal and it's special. Because remember, as we talked about last week and we'll continue to talk about, remember the idea of church in the Bible is never used, nor ever could be used to describe a building, nor just a service. Though we the people can gather in buildings and we can have things like worship services, but rather each church of Jesus in the Bible is the people gathering together on Sunday and in our lives. And that being the case, the Bible says we are the body of Christ. Which all finally leads us to this week. So that's what the body of Christ means. But now for this week, if you want to think about it this way, last week was more about what the body of Christ is. And in the following weeks, as you might know from 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to talk about how the body of Christ works in love and service and relationships with one another. But before that, for this week, what the Bible is going to answer is, okay, but how do we get into the body? Meaning, how do you and I become part of the body of Christ? And that's what we see in verse 13. And just so you know, specifically what we're going to see is that it's the Spirit of God himself who brings Christ's people into Christ's body. But all that said, that then brings us to our outline for our time together on this verse. So to really understand and apply just verse 13 here, we're going to have three sections asking three different questions. Three different questions. First, we're going to focus in and ask, what is this baptism in the Spirit, which as you can see is talked about at the beginning of this verse, and then second, we'll have a whole section asking, and what big implication of this baptism of the Spirit? And then third, and finally, we'll ask, and what is this drinking of the Spirit, which you can see is talked about at the end of the verse? And so in some, pretty simple, if you just look at the verse. First, what is this baptism in the Spirit? Second, was a big implication of that? And third, what is this drinking of the Spirit? And in those three questions, we'll see more about what the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, does and how he has to do with you and I together being in the body of Christ. But that said, church, let's dive in together and begin our first section. Again, here we're asking, what is this baptism in the Spirit? And before we start to answer that, just so you can clearly see it for yourself, look down again at verse 13. So in verse 12, the body has many parts, but it's one body. And then in verse 13, the Bible adds, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So as you can kind of tell, this is an important verse because we're in the body of Christ then for or because, the first word of our verse, we were all baptized into one body. Meaning this baptism in the spirit, according to God's word, is the way. It's the means that we apparently get into Christ's body. And to be honest, this is even clearer if you read this in the original language, because just so you know, that same Greek word there for in, which is the word en in Greek, is the same word they use for by. And so that means this phrase could be translated in one spirit or by one spirit we're all baptized, which sort of mean the same thing, because overall the point is, by the person of the Holy Spirit, in him, we were all baptized into Christ's body. So that's what the verse says, but still the question is, what are we talking about? Now, what does that mean? and mean for you and I? Well, in answer to that, we need first to know actually what it doesn't mean. Because especially today, 
I think knowing what that doesn't mean might be just as important, if not more important, than knowing what it doesn't mean. And on this, let me just say, if in what we're about to talk about, you have more questions or you're confused about it for whatever reason, just honestly, please come talk to me at any time, especially after the service. I'd, I'd love to talk more. But I say that because in brief, in the last 120 years or so especially, it has become quite common to think of the baptism in or of the Spirit as a sort of second experience or second blessing. Meaning it's been taught and thought that first we trust in Jesus, but then for some Christians, the baptism in the Spirit is something that can happen after our conversion. And that's been a popular teaching in many Christian te- uh, churches, especially in the last 120 years, even in Bible-believing denominations. And, and it has been something that has caused a lot of people to seek out that experience or even to feel discouraged if they don't have such an experience. And so let me just say, that is not what's being talked about here. And not only that, but to be honest, I don't think, and for most of church history, Christians and theologians have not thought that that's even a biblical teaching or something that we should pursue. Instead, it has been mainly believed for 2,000 years and biblically thought that the baptism in the Spirit is something that happens for all Christians now once they first trust in Jesus. That's what I believe, but But quickly, let me just share with you why. And again, on this topic, I know for some of you in this room right now, this idea of a second blessing or baptism in the Spirit may be an idea to you that's totally new or something you really haven't thought about. And that's great. But for others of you, like myself in my story, and particularly in my college years, we we might have been taught or believed this or still believe it. And therefore, when we read a verse like this or think of our Christian lives or what we should pursue we may think of the baptism in the Spirit as as some special post-conversion experience. And so quickly, here's three reasons why I genuinely believe from God's Word, and I commend these to you. Test it for yourself why the second blessing or special post-conversion baptism in the Spirit is not what this verse is talking about, nor is a biblical teaching that Christians should pursue. So three three reasons. First, and perhaps most important, such a so-called blessing, second blessing of a baptism in the Spirit is never commanded. Not once in the whole New Testament. It is commanded as something, excuse me, it's never commanded as something we're supposed to seek out, nor as something Christians should have tried to experience. Not once in your whole New Testament. And to be clear, what I mean by that is that in the whole New Testament, from Jesus and from his apostles, we are told to believe and do and seek out many things, but we are never told to seek out such a thing that people call like a second blessing in the baptism of the Spirit. And in fact, in the New Testament letters, which you remember are written from the apostles to churches like ours, in those letters, we're not only never told to seek out that experience, but rather it's instead taught that all Christians have the Spirit, and that all Christians have been baptized by the Spirit, which is exactly what our verse says in verse 13, which we'll get to in a little bit. Now, on that, I can imagine that if you are familiar at all with the book of Acts, right, you might be hearing that and wondering, but then what about all those times in the book of Acts where the Spirit does powerfully come upon people already believe in Jesus and do believe already, do already believe in Jesus. And that is a great question. And it's, I think, misinterpreting those stories and acts that has led people in good faith to genuinely teach that we should seek out such experiences. But in short, concerning those times, first, even with those stories, still, 
Such an experience, again, is never commanded from the apostles as something we should seek. Nor is such an experience ever talked about in the New Testament letters, meaning outside of Acts, which is significant. But then also on that, and even more importantly, concerning those stories, if you do read the book of Acts carefully, and again, this was the majority interpretation for most of church history, if you read Acts carefully, you'll see that Acts is a unique history of what happened in the beginning of this new covenant with the church in Christ. And I say that because of how Luke records the history of Acts. Because when we look at what he's doing, we see that once Jesus rises and ascends, then the Spirit does come in a new way, as promised in the Old Testament, for the whole world in fulfillment of the new covenant. And yet, when he comes, what we see when you read Acts is that he, the Spirit, clearly comes to the peoples of the world initially and intentionally in stages. Test this for yourself. He comes to the peoples of the world initially and intentionally in stages, all to prove that he is really now for the world. And here's what I mean. Stick with me. But if you're curious, think about this. To begin, the first and major coming of the Spirit powerfully is in Acts chapter 2. Right? And that's where he, the Spirit, comes at Pentecost. And he does so in Jerusalem to mostly Jews from all over. Right? That makes sense. But then, and again, it's almost as if to show that he isn't just for the Jews, but for the whole world. But then as Acts continues, as that early history continues, the Spirit then comes powerfully to the peoples of the world in stages with these unique stories. And we can say that because then the next story in your Bibles of the Spirit's powerful coming is in Acts 8. And in Acts 8, Philip goes and proclaims Jesus to the Samaritans who were like half-blood Jews that the Jews hated. And guess what? They, though, believe in Jesus. And then Philip waits for the apostles to come because the apostles were a big deal, and they lay hands on the people, and then the Samaritans receive the Spirit for the first time, which is a huge deal. And so in Acts, you have first the Spirit coming in history to mainly Jews who believed in Jesus. And then he goes in history to Samaritans who believe in Jesus. And then the next powerful story in this book of Acts of, a spirit, of the Spirit coming in a powerful way is in Acts 10. And there, Cornelius, who lives, who lives even further out in Caesarea, and he was a God-fearing Gentile, which means he at least believed in God, but he was not a Jew, not even a half-blood Jew, he receives the Spirit in a powerful way after he believes in Jesus. So if you're tracking, the Spirit in history starts with mostly Jews in Jerusalem. Then he goes to the half-blood Samaritans. And then he goes to God-fearing Gentiles. And that's not it, though. Then finally, and the point is, this is the last time in your Bibles that a special Spirit encounter like this happens. Last time. Finally, in Acts 19, there is a powerful coming of the Spirit to the people in Ephesus who now were full-blown Gentiles all the way out in Greece. They believe in Jesus, and then the Spirit powerfully comes upon them. Even full-blown Gentiles, the nations, he comes upon them as well. And so hopefully you're seeing the prog progression that Luke is writing in Acts. After Jesus rises, the Spirit comes in history as a blessing 
in the new covenant for the world. But in that history, to prove this point, he started at Pentecost with mostly Jews. Then through Jesus' apostles, he went to the half-blood Samaritans. And then to God-fearing Gentiles. And then just to the Gentiles in blessing, or Gentiles in general as a blessing for the whole world. With each of those stories being a powerful showing of who he is. But then, and this is the point concerning what we're talking about. I know it's a lot, but then from then on out, after the Spirit is for the world, the Gentiles, we never, not even once in your whole New Testaments, are told of a special Spirit encounter like that. Nor are we Christians ever told to seek out a second experience like that. Because rather from then out, in our Bibles, after that happens in history, after the Spirit goes to the Jews, Samaritans, God-fearing Gentiles, and then the nations, then... The apostles write that everyone from everywhere, when they believe in Jesus, is said to be baptized in and to have the Spirit. So test that for yourself. That's the first and longest reason why this baptism in the Spirit is not in the Bible's second blessing after conversion experience, which then leads quickly to a second reason. And again, that's what we see here in verse 13. So look down at our verse now, because even in just this one verse, it's clear that the baptism in the Spirit isn't something only for some Christians. Instead, look, Paul's point is the opposite because he clearly says that being in Christ's body, meaning being a Christian, means that we all have been baptized in the Spirit. And so saying that the baptism in the Spirit is something only for some Christians post-conversion is something that's going literally against what Paul writes in this verse. Which finally then, third, why this isn't a second blessing in the Bible is simply the fact that in the New Testament, Elsewhere in Ephesians 4, verse 5, Paul writes, quote, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians 4, 5. And I bring that up with verse 13 here because sometimes people will say that, yes, this baptism of the Spirit happens at conversion, but then there's a second baptism of the Spirit that you can have in your Christian life. But the, but the issue with that is that your Bibles say from the Apostle Paul that there's, quote, one baptism. And so if Paul or the other apostles really taught that there was a second baptism, two baptisms for Christians, then the phrase one baptism wouldn't be in our Bibles. And so again, I know that was a lot, and, but all that does mean that again, this baptism of the Spirit isn't a post-conversion thing. Rather, in the New Testament, to be clear, this is for all those who trust in Jesus. And at conversion now, we receive the Spirit and are baptized in the Spirit. Now, that does not mean that we can't walk more by the Spirit, nor that we can't avoid grieving the Spirit, nor that we can't be filled more with the Spirit. All of those are biblical concepts and commands, but the baptism of the Spirit happens when we first genuinely trust in Jesus. But that finally brings us to our question. Now. So all that said, that's what the baptism of the Spirit isn't, but still the question is, but what is it? <laughs> Right, what is it referring to? What does it have to do with us being in the body of Christ? And to answer that, focus in now on that word baptism. Baptized here in verse 13. Because to be honest, that word in English for us is a weird word, but in Greek, that word baptism, baptizo, literally just meant immerse. And it usually carried with it the idea of being immersed into water. And so that said, we hear baptism in the Spirit, and that sounds strangely religious, but if we read it in the original language simply as immersed, then think about how that could connect to this idea of us really being in Christ's body. Because to be in something implies, implies that you got into it. 
right? And so with that in mind, what this baptism is describing is that we're in the body of Christ, verse 12, because, verse 13, we've been immersed by the person of the Spirit into Christ and his body. Meaning there's a picture going on here in a sense, a picture of what happens with you and me and our identities when we come to know Jesus. And the picture is that we believe in Christ. When that happens, the Spirit himself is involved in that and he immerses us, he brings us into Christ, into Christ's body. The person of the Holy Spirit is the one who brings you and me into connection to, into relationship with, into union with Christ. And so, and so that's, if you will, the theological reality that's being described here. It, it, it hopefully makes sense. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if, if you rely on Jesus as your Lord and Savior of your life, meaning if you're really a Christian, then you are in Christ, which has a lot of implications in the Bible, and you are in Christ because the Spirit in you immersed you into Christ. He unites you and me and all believers to Christ forever. And yet, that said, that's not all we can say about this immersion, this baptism here. Because as we just talked about, this Greek word does mean immerse. And yet, as I'm sure we all think about, right, when we read this verse, this verse still, in a way, does, though, connect to what we do in water baptism as well, which is something Jesus commanded us to do. And so now, really, the question is, how does water baptism and this baptism relate? And that's an important question, but in basic, the answer is, just as water baptism symbolizes things like being washed of our sins or dying and rising with Christ, so also, now we can see in this verse, water baptism, being immersed in water, symbolizes the spirit immersion into Christ that we've already had, this new identity that we get. And, and to be clear, this idea of water baptism then being a symbol is quite important to understand because that means, to be clear, water baptism doesn't do or bring about any of those realities it represents. Meaning, water baptism does not wash us of our sins. Water baptism does not raise us to new life. Water baptism does not baptize us into Christ by the Spirit. Right? Christ in the Spirit does those things. But instead, what water baptism is, is it represents, it symbolizes those realities which is a big reason why Jesus commanded his followers to do it. Which all means for us, for you and me then, in applying this whole first section on the baptism of the Spirit in verse 13, this means first, if you do trust in Jesus Christ, you can take heart that you have the Spirit, that the Spirit has immersed you into Jesus Christ, that you are a part of Christ's people, and that you and I are connected to Christ now and forever in a special, real way. And that really is the main application of verse 13. But also, right, that said, just as how last week we talked about how being in the universal body is supposed to take practical effects in the Bible in the local body, so I think it is here with this talk of baptism. Because, because brothers and sisters, the reality is it's Jesus who commanded us to be water baptized. And in fact, as he, after his resurrection in Matthew 28, defined what it would make those disciples as, making disciples, he defined it as, quote, baptizing them and teaching them. And so according to Jesus, to be a follow of him, follower of him means being baptized and then being taught. Right? And we might hear that, and we often do, and we think, man, why did Jesus add that? <laughs> right? Why did he command water baptism? And there are many reasons, but here in verse 13, again, we see an obvious one. 
it's because being baptized in water symbolizes and it celebrates what happened in our one baptism into Christ by the Spirit, the new identity that we all have. And that's why, by the way, it has been the case historically for almost all churches that if you want to be, making it practical, a body part, a member of a local church body, then baptism biblically is required. Because first, Jesus commanded it, and so it doesn't make much sense for someone who's wanting to follow Jesus into a local body to come into the body while willingly not obeying a command of Jesus, if that makes sense. But not only that, but second, if we are baptized into Christ's universal body by the Spirit, we then represent that by being baptized into Christ's local body in water baptism. And so all that said, I know for most people here, you probably have been baptized in water, and that's great. And to be clear, you do not need to be baptized every time you join a church or anything. Rather, we are baptized once in water, right, to symbolize our once and for all washing of sins, to symbolize that we are baptized into Christ by the Spirit once, when we trust in Jesus. But if you are here, and and, and you do trust in Christ, which means that you have been baptized by the Spirit into Christ, and yet you have not been baptized in water, And and especially if you are considering, by God's grace, to become a body part of this local body here at ECC, which we love, I do encourage you to get water baptized. And do it not because you think that you have to make a statement or because you think it's about you, but instead, as we saw a few weeks ago with our brother Carlos, do it because it represents what Christ has already done for you. And as we just saw, what the Spirit has already done in you. Christ saves us and washes us of our sins and raises us to new life. And the Spirit immerses us and identifies us with Christ. That's what defines us now. And therefore, we symbolize that to ourselves, to others, and for the glory of God in water baptism. And, and so again, please let me know if you want to get baptized. We would we'd really love to do it. But that church is our first and longest section, by far our longest. But that now leads to our second section. And now here... In our second section, we'll now take what we just saw about this baptism in the Spirit that we've all had as Christians, and we'll ask, and what is the big implication of this, this baptism of the Spirit? In a sense, of course, we just talked about some implications, like how it means that we all have and have been baptized by the Spirit, and that we should be water baptized. And yet, the reason I wanted to make this question, if you will, its own section, is because in a way, as you can see, Paul almost makes it its own section in our verse. And you'll see it. So look down at verse 13 again. We're all baptized into the Spirit, into Christ's body. What does that mean? Verse 13. For in one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one Spirit. And and so what is the big implication of the Spirit baptism we've all had? Well, it's that therefore, those, those old things that used to really distinguish us and divide us no longer do. And I think that's why it's helpful for this part of this verse to be its own section this morning because Paul says we were all baptized and he could have stopped there, but then he adds Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, both of which back at that time were big statements. And so the point is, the implication is we're all baptized by the person of the Holy Spirit and so we're all in Christ's body and therefore we really now are equal and united in a profoundly deep and special way. Meaning practically in comparison to the fact that we're really all united to Christ now together. In comparison to that reality, which to be clear, is reality. 
When it comes to things like Jew or Greek or slave or free back then, or, or things like successful or less successful today, or wealthy or poor or old or young or whatever, the point is we're all baptized into Christ now and forever. And so how can those small, fleeting, silly things divide us any longer? This is united in Christ together now and for eternity. But finally on this point, it's not only in your text that we're unified in Christ, but as you can see, technically, even digging deeper, it's that our unity comes from the fact that we've all been immersed into, quote, one body together. And that's really the last part of this implication here in verse 13. This is where it connects to the local church. Because as you can tell, especially if you were here last week, whenever we're talking about the body of Christ in the Bible, we and the apostles are always weaving together this idea of being saved in the universal body of Christ, every believer everywhere, but also weaving that with this idea that that is supposed to have practical effects in a local body. And so I think it is here. Because think about it, Paul is saying to these Corinthians, what unites you is that you, by the Spirit, were all baptized into one body, meaning Christ. But not only that, but when he says to them, into one body, he's saying into this local church. You were all baptized into one body here. You were all brought into this one local body in Corinth. Because remember, he's about to say in verse 27, to this local church in Corinth, you are the body of Christ, that one body. And that then adds a lot to our unity. Our unity here is a local church at ECC because, if, because that was confusing. Just think about it this way. The point is, it's not just that we've all been immersed into Christ and his universal body. That's amazingly true. But also our unity is that, yes, we all trust in Christ and we've all been immersed into Christ's universal body, but also we've all been immersed into Christ's body here as body parts in this local church. Right, this local body. And, and so taking this verse then, we can see, or we should see and, and look around at one another, at the, at the many parts, body parts in this local congregation, at, at the many of you who are members and the many of you who, Lord willing, we'd love to become members. We can look around. And this verse is leading us to be able to say that the Spirit has led each of us to be immersed into this one body this local body, this local church here at ECC, right? And really knowing that can really unite us. Because again, that means that what matters then is that and compared to our social status, or how successful or less successful or wealthy or old or educated we are, those things can't compare. Instead, what matters in a church, in this church, is everyone knows Jesus, we're all in Christ in his universal body, and we're all in Christ together here in this body. And we're members here, or you can become a member here, and that means that that one body for us is us here at ECC in Stanford, Connecticut in the year 2022. If you're a member here, you want to become a member here, the point is we are united together in this one local body of Jesus Christ. So that's our first two sections. We're baptized by the Spirit into Christ and his body that manifests itself in the local body where we are equal and unified profoundly together, which finally leads to our third and last section in question. This will be by far shortest, but it sort of transitions us into what we're going to be spending the rest 
of our series on in these chapters. But finally on this verse, the last question is, and what is this drinking of the Spirit? See for yourself one last time, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. And so that does sound kind of strange, but after everything we've seen, I hope this will now sort of make sense. Because you think about it this way, as to what that means, it simply seems, and most scholars think this, that after Paul used a water word of baptism, that has water connotations, connotations of being immersed or submerged in water. After saying that, it seems that Paul decides to use another water verb to show how we're supposed to relate to the person of the Spirit who has brought us into the body. And that's that we drink from him. Right? We are empowered by him, sustained by the third person of the Trinity, God himself, now that we're in the body. So the Spirit brings us into the body and we drink from him as we now try to live as a local body. And that's why, by the way, in the Bible and in the rest of this chapter to come, we'll talk a lot about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Because we sometimes think of spiritual gifts almost like talents that we kind of own. But the reality is in the Bible, as you can hear, they are spiritual gifts. Meaning as verse 11, if you want to skim your eyes there real quick, verse 11 says above, quote, all these gifts, that's what he's talking about, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so again, the idea is the same Spirit, God himself, who brought us into the body of Christ, then equips us to live in the body of Christ. We drink from him. We get our sustenance from him. He gifts us, gives us, graces us. All those are the same word in the original Greek. The Spirit gifts us, gives us abilities, personalities, strengths, talents, all so that we can do this body thing together. So that we can be a flourishing local church, local body, loving and serving and going deep with one another. Not just on Sundays, but in our lives. That's what the Spirit does in us, in our local church body, as we drink from Him. And that's basically then what spiritual gifts are. If that makes sense, they're not not things we really own or things that are only or mainly to be used in a church service. Far from it. Instead, spiritual gifts are the way that the Spirit himself graces, gifts us each individually as body parts so that together we can be a healthy, unified, flourishing, loving, local body of Jesus Christ. And so that church is verse 13. And just so you know, uh, next week we will cover all of verses 14 through 20. And so if you're nervous that we're going to go verse by verse through this whole thing, we won't go that slow. But I do hope you are seeing, just looking at verse 13, the reality of this, and I hope it's been a little helpful. Because the truth is, just stepping back for a second, I hope you are seeing that, if you're tracking with everything we've been saying, that being a Christian then is truly an amazing thing. Because again, to be clear, this is reality. God is real. Jesus is real. We are truly broken and sinners on our own. But Jesus came, he lived, died, rose, and is coming back. And if we trust in him, we are secure in him forever. But not only that, but then it was Jesus himself who sent the Spirit in history to be with his his people, the third person of the Trinity. Now for all of us who trust in Jesus, we really have Jesus in us by the Spirit. 
So you got the gospel, you got what Jesus did in sending the Spirit, but not only that, but then in Jesus' plan, the Spirit is also the one who brings individual people, body parts, into local churches, local bodies of Christ. And in these local bodies, it's God himself who equips us, who gives us and gifts us so that we can grow and love and serve and get to know and go deep with other believers, all for our good and for Jesus' glory. That's Christianity. Which all means, as we close, three quick things. Three quick things. First, again, to repeat myself, if you haven't been baptized, I do encourage you to do so. Jesus washes us of our sins. The Spirit immerses us into Christ. That all happens when we trust in Jesus. But it's because of that that Jesus commanded us to be water baptized, to represent those things. And so, again, if you trust in Jesus and you haven't been baptized in water, we'd love to do so. Just let me know. Second, though, this also all means that if you're a Christian, and you are not a body part, a member of a local church, then biblically, not from me, from God's word, you should be. You should be. Now, that does not mean you need to be a member here at this local church. But from God's word, from Jesus and his apostles, it's clear that each follower of Jesus is only a body part, and so they are to be a body part in a local body, a body that you have been brought into by the Holy Spirit. And, and so as the series goes on, we would love, Lord willing, to hopefully have some of you become members in this local body if the Lord wills. And we will talk more about that, but if that is you, if God is leading you here to join at ECC, we'd love that, and, and just let me know. And, and then we'll talk about more of what that actually looks like, but in short, it's basically biblically just asking you and making sure you genuinely do trust in Jesus. And so, so if that is you and you want to be a body part here, just let me know. Then finally, and lastly, third, everything we talked about means, again, that this really is who we are as a local church at ECC. I hope you're feeling it. We are a local body of Jesus Christ, meaning we all trust in Jesus, yes, but even more so, we're a bunch of individuals who have been immersed into Christ, who have the Spirit, who are, in, who are united now in Christ with all our brothers and sisters all over the world more than we can ever imagine, but not only that. But remember, God has led us to be united here in this one local body in Stamford, Connecticut, at East And so let's see ourselves that way. Because it really is a privilege, brothers and sisters, together to be a local body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.